an ideal situation is you want to identify one or more options a business has, you know, kind of strategically or financially on their balance sheet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On this episode of the Investing City Podcast, we actually have a repeat guest. So this is the first time we've ever had a reappearance, and it's none other than Bluegrass Capital. So we had such a good response and good feedback from last podcast that we decided to do a part two. In this one, we talk about Twitter, how we use it, how to stop the shiny new thing syndrome when looking at new companies, evaluating new companies, returns on capital, and then we actually dive into some different ideas. So jump right in and join us. We have a special guest who's actually been on before, the first ever repeat guest, Bluegrass Capital. Fantastic. (laughs) Sweet. So... I want to start off with a question that I've been thinking about personally a lot lately, and it's this idea of returns on capital. Because Mm. return on equity, you have just net income, shareholders' equity, it's pretty easy to calculate. But if you look at returns on capital, you know, you have returns on invested capital, returns on capital employed, and there's a lot of gray area. So I just want to hear your thoughts about returns on capital and then just kind of talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. And this, we may even be able to tie this one into the other uh, topic we were thinking about, which is the topic of, you know, how do we use Twitter? How is it useful kind of thing? And the only reason I bring that up is because I remember distinctly three or four years ago, maybe a little longer, I was really thinking about this topic, returns on capital for different businesses and what's their appropriate measurement. And is there a standard measurement to think about? And I really went down this rabbit hole with a lot of investors on Twitter that helped me kind of flesh it out. Um, so that's just one example. But I think at a really high level, uh, looking at a business, there's two big buckets that I first think about for returns on capital. One would be returns on tangible capital. And tangible capital would just be networking capital uh, plus um, the depreciated value of the assets. And some people like to gross up the asset value you know, pre-depreciation, but anyway, same thing. Um, so just the physical plant and property that you need to operate the business um, plus networking capital. That's tangible capital. And say, what's the return on that? Um, I look at EBIT uh, or operating profit divided by that kind of pre-tax. Um, that is, I think, a raw calculation or uh, a measure for you to look and to say, what is the quality of this business? You know, if you can do a return on tangible capital of kind of north of 20%, you know, that's kind of a good threshold for this is probably a good business. The other bucket, and it's really, they're both, one is not necessarily important than the, more important than the other, but the other one is a return on total capital. And that would just be, you know, 
the tangible capital plus any intangible assets. So goodwill uh, that's been accumulated from acquisitions and also any amortization. And what that shows you is basically management skill. How good is the management team at allocating capital? Um, which is a separate topic than how good is the underlying business. Uh, you have to kind of understand both of those before you can think about making an investment in a company or an industry. Um, so they kind of stand apart. But I guess that's the high level framing of how we think about it. And what are some of the companies that you've seen with just really great returns on capital, either tangible capital or total capital? We're kind of living in a world where uh, increasingly intangible assets drive more of the value of the firm overall. And for a company that hasn't done a lot of acquisitions or been acquired itself, you know, a lot of those intangible assets have never really been marked on the balance sheet. Uh, so you look at some of these brand value surveys and studies that come out and they say, you know, pick your company, Chanel or L- LVMH or Coke or Pepsi or Visa or Disney, whoever has like 50 billion or a hundred billion dollars worth of brand value. Well, if you go look that up, I mean, it's not on their balance sheet. You know, that's not something that's something that's marked on their balance sheet, but, um, um, so those businesses, whether the accounting is wrong or right for that, um, you know, they don't employ a lot of capital, um, on their balance sheets and they tend to have really, really high returns on capital. Um, when you look at the world of kind of more regulated industries and asset heavy industries, a really good business, can produce a lower return on capital, say 8, 10, 15%, like a railroad or a, uh, a data center or a cell phone tower, you know, a, a lower a level of capital, but still be a really, really good investment because the kind of optimal funding structure involves a lot of debt. You know, you can typically put kind of three, four, five turns of, of leverage on those businesses and, and that still be kind of a conservative capital structure. And when you put make half or more of the of the capital structure leverage, um, your 10% return on total capital can turn into a 20 or 30% uh, return on equity. I think investors don't always, they tend to box them in sometimes and think, you know, it's either or, you know, if, if a business uh, creates high enough return on capital, you don't need leverage. And that's not necessarily always, always the, the case as an investor. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so if you're looking at kind of those companies who maybe have a little bit of lower return on capital, but have higher debt, what are some of those things that you're looking for just to make sure that it's still a good investment so that that debt doesn't become a problem? I mean, this is the simple basic stuff. I mean, just cash flow. I mean, does this thing, you know, you don't want to ever put yourself, you know, in a a permanence issue where, you know, in a, in a downturn, you can't meet your debt obligations. Um, I guess a, a quick and dirty way would be like, you know, can they pay this debt off in three or four years? Um, you know, just something like that. If the cycle turns uh, on them, you know, can they basically clean up their balance sheet anytime they want to under their own control? Gotcha. So two companies in the last podcast we did, it was kind of this question of a blind trust portfolio meaning companies or industries that you would be really comfortable holding stocks for the real long term. And so we've already kind of mentioned luxury companies. So I'm interested if you just talk about that a little bit and just a little more detail on those. It's a big topic and it's a big category. Um, I think a simple way for me that I approach that business, uh, just to kind of uh, 
think about it backwards and say, why is this a good business? Why is it going to last a long time? What are the values? Um, I think it just gets down to people, um, uh, kind of social norms, relationships. I think a lot with a lot of businesses, when you're thinking about that, like how's, how can a business be uh, disintermediated or disrupted by technology? Um, if at the end of the day, you can break it down and say the primary drivers of this business are people on both sides, you know, of demand and supply, there's some kind of people element that's a big part of it, um, then I think those businesses tend to be less um, uh, uh, disruptable, so to speak. And so I think luxury would fit that category. And, and to build on that a little bit, what I mean is um, people really want, it, it's our nature as, as humans to stratify against ourselves, to signal to other people that we are important or we are special or we are intelligent or whatever. And that kind of manifests itself different ways in different countries. And in, in some ways, uh, and I would say the U.S. is kind of a hybrid, but in, for sure in the U.S., uh, meritocracy and merit, meritocratic achievement is rewarded. You know, if you are a star athlete that you've earned it through hard work or if you're a star student and you get into a good school or get a good job, you know, you're rewarded for it in society. And it's kind of everybody approves that's the way it should be. Um, uh, anyway, one one way in certain societies that people signal status other than merit, meritocracy is through, you know, branding themselves, uh, showing the, externally their wares, you know, putting themselves in pictures of, you know, Ferraris or jet planes or, you know, with Louis Vuitton purse or uh, these types of things. Um, so it's, it's basically the, the value of the brand uh, for people is just its ability to stratify um, ourselves against other people. And, you know, for better or worse, you know, I don't want to dig too deep into I guess human psychology and whether this is like a healthy thing for, for our, you know, culture or whatever. But I think it's something that just is, and it's going to be enduring. Um, and so what that, that basically connotates a lot of pricing power on these luxury goods. Um, and I guess another point I would add is, and I think you're seeing this play out in the market right now in, in countries and parts of the world where, the government or the social system has is really uh, kind of formed around the idea of everybody being equal. Um, so the extreme would be like communism, uh, but you know, a very flat society where everybody's treated equally and fairly, and nobody's better than the other person. Um, and China is one that, in theory, jumps out at me. Um, and those societies, that's actually where you're seeing luxury products have the most growth. Because those consumers are kind of trained historically, or not trained, they've kind of been, you know, not allowed to express individuality and to show off like who I am as far as my taste and clothing or, you know, who my favorite sports team is or, um, you know, what my musical preferences are. And when they get introduced with that choice, they seem to just really take it and run with it to the extreme. And, you know, that's why I think you see luxury products really taking off as, as far as um, way people, young millennials in China are trying to express themselves and express their independence. Yeah, so that is super interesting. You kind of have this overarching thesis of social norms. And in your Grubhub, when you're talking about it last time, you kind of mentioned this idea that in Europe, basically, the food delivery system is much more ingrained um, 
in the culture. And so mm-hmm. I want to ask this question about you have this overarching thesis, these social norms, but then how are you looking for disconfirming evidence? Because this thesis is more intellectual, but how do you reconcile that with the data in the company? That is a good question. And we're going to credit that. My friend Maura Bailey asked that. And he's a great analyst. He actually educated me about uh, Sherwin Williams. So shout out to Moro. Um, that is a really interesting one to think about. I'm not sure if I can give a specific luxury example off the top of my head, but I know the one that j- always jumps out at me because I it just always is painful when it happens is when a management team says they're going to do one thing or they're not going to do something. If they just say, hey, we're going to invest capital in this space or we're not going to or um, you know, we're going to spin off this business and then they change their mind when they basically do something and then they just radically do the opposite, like three or six or 12 months later. Um, I think that's probably the biggest disconfirming evidence, you know, that I've underwritten this management team. I think they're good capital allocators. I think they're smart people. I think they're honest and ethically, you know, good. And then they tell us they're going to do something and they just totally do something different. Um, and sometimes conditions change, competitive conditions change, or regulatory conditions change, so they have to change as well. So it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, but that one definitely jumps out at me. Is something when you see happen uh, and you don't have a good explanation for it, um, you really kind of have to ask yourself, what's what's going on, and is this the management team that I, that I thought they were? That's a good one. And just speaking of management, what are some traits that you look for in a management team? Some, well, some easy ones are, you know, uh, we've, I've confessed to you that I really like owner operators. So I really want a management team to have a lot of skin in the game and own a lot of their stock. That's a great sign. Um, it's kind of hard to see it um, all the time, but I really like frugality. So you have some cultures that are just built around, you know, you read reports about the the management team sleeps like two to a hotel room when they travel or they only fly, um, you know, coach class on airplanes and types of things. I was thinking about like O'Reilly auto parts and uh, fast and all, for example. And, you know, I think it's very important and this is important for any leader, but especially for a public company management team uh, to be a good communicator. And I guess the way I think about that is selfishly, you know, I really, if a management team doesn't write a shareholder letter, at least annually, you know, I think that just kind of screens them out for me. Um, it's just kind of like if you can't even communicate with me, you know, on one or two pages of paper once a year in a succinct and clear way and just tell me what you've been doing for the last 12 months and why with my money. I mean, if they can't do that, then I mean, how how do you how do we expect that they can communicate well with their own employees, you know, or their own customers? I think that's really important communication. And the way that the, only, the one way I can screen for that is you know, shareholder letter. And you have, you have some companies now, um, like a Netflix or a Spotify, I mean, they're writing quarterly shareholder letters. And the Netflix management team writes like 10 page quarterly shareholder letters. I hope that trend catches on. <laughs> and here's a throwaway one, but I've been looking to tell this to somebody. Um, and somebody like Renaissance or somebody Two Sigma, the quant shops have probably already figured this out. But I'm convinced that if you look at an industry um, and there are four or five players, um, and one of the players is from Minnesota, like literally just the state of Minnesota. That's probably the one you should bet on. Um, it, it's just it's ridiculous. 
um, how many good companies and management teams exist in the state of Minnesota. Uh, I don't know why that is, but yeah, I'm just throwing that out there for anybody to pay attention to. <laughs> Wait, so what companies? I mean, I know oh, man. 3M. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I should have been more prepared to say that. Uh, Ecolab is there. What's the business? I just said a minute ago. Um, Fastenal is there. Those are a couple, but uh, yeah, I, I promise you. I'll just start keeping track and maybe I'll tweet it out sometime. But there's a ridiculously good number of publicly traded companies that are based in Minnesota. Interesting. So you mentioned Spotify, how they are starting to write quarterly letters. And I believe that you did a little bit of research into Spotify, right? Um, yeah, I haven't been able to dig deep into it, but I've definitely been following it for a long time. Um, and, you know, for me, media... It hasn't necessarily been the best investment sector for me personally, but it's by far my favorite sector, just from a curiosity standpoint, um, probably because it involves just like consumer products. It involves things that I use. You know, I can see the service. I can understand it. You know, we watch Netflix and Hulu and use Spotify or iTunes or whatever. So it's something kind of Peter Lynchian you can just understand. Um, Spotify is evolving into a pretty interesting um, business and I think an investment story. Um, I think the knock, and I think it's a good pushback for investing in Spotify, has been, if you look at the value chain of the music industry, um, there are three very large, powerful music labels that control probably 80 or 90% of all recorded music, the rights, um, the intellectual property to recorded music. And basically, you know, they control the value chain, they control the economics in the industry, um, they control the artists, um, they control the access to music, et cetera. And so if you're a distributor of music, if you're Spotify, for example, you know they're going to permanently, those labels are permanently going to have leverage over you. They're going to be, be able to dictate your economics. Um, and to roll that forward and say what that looks like for Spotify's financial model, it basically says you know, Spotify is never going to have uh, a very high uh, gross margin. They're going to kind of be stuck at a 20, 25% gross margin forever. Um, and they're just not going to be able to scale their business uh, because they're never going to be able to scale their gross margin. <clears throat> so that's kind of the why not to invest, what the knock is on the business. Um, what I see evolving, and it's it's hard to, it, it still gives me pause a little bit as an investor, even though I do own the stock now. Um, what I see evolving is I see the majority of the value being created in the overall music ecosystem by the distributors um, and by Spotify specifically. Um, so on the artist side, they are helping new artists, you know, find an outlet or find listeners, find a market for themselves faster than they ever could. You know, they are they are making it possible uh, for artists like I believe Chance the Rapper uh, and. Uh, people like that to basically break into the industry unsigned, you know, without the support of a label and to control more of their own economics. And so as that happens more often and other artists that hopefully have smart management teams, look at that. And they say, look at this, look at this other artist who broke into the industry, was able to keep a huge chunk of their economics and not give, you know, half their profit up to this record label for the rest of their lives. You know, why don't we go to try to do that? And what are ways we can try to do that? And if you're thinking about it that way, I mean, Spotify is your best option, or at least it kind of helps you to go along that path of trying to be independent and kind of control your own economics as an artist. Um, 
So I think they're adding a lot of value on the content side, even though they don't control the content. Um, on the on the user side, I think I would I guess I'd frame it like this. If you and I wish I could give, attribute the quote correctly, but the quote is something like, you know, in a world of abundance, in a world of increasing abundance, you know, scarcity, wherever the bottleneck is, wherever there's something scarce, that thing uh, kind of drives value and more more value accrues to the, to the scarce thing. Um, in this world, curation really adds a lot of value. Um, Spotify, at least from me talking to other people and people who are more sophisticated as far as their musical taste than me, Spotify by far seems to have the best curation engine um, absolutely in music distribution and possibly in all of media. Um, if you ask, you know, a user of Spotify, like, Hey, you know, um, you know, how fast does it take you to listen to a song? Like, let's, if you wake up today and you don't have a playlist already baked in, like, you know, how fast does it take for Spotify to get you to a song you like, you know, and though most of the time people say like 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. Um, and I don't, I don't know about you and it's probably an unfair comparison, but I'll make it anyway. I mean, my wife and I can argue for 30 minutes over what we watch on Netflix or Hulu or um, Amazon Prime. Um, and I would, and I, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's a me and my wife issue. I think there, I think that's a just a bad curation or lack of curation issue. Um, so I think that's it's hard to put a value on that. Um, but I know it makes customers really happy. I know it makes customers of Spotify stickier and stay longer. Um, so I think I think they've kind of really they're adding a lot of value on, on both sides um, for their customers and for artists. And I think that value is going to continue to grow over time and allow them to have more and more leverage over the record labels. Yeah. So just as you're talking about that, I kind of was reminded of YouTube where content creators could kind of bypass anybody and just go directly to this platform and the curation is really good and kind of on top of YouTube's platform create this ecosystem and actually just get paid through that ecosystem. So the question is because there's still these record labels that still control a majority of the flow of money and everything, what is the what are the signposts that you'll be looking for to see if the record labels are actually deteriorating or not. So the way, in a, in a smart way, or maybe the only way, that Spotify management, I think, kind of responds to this question, or if they could respond to this question, this is what I think they would say. They would say, we're not trying to take economics away from the labels. They would say this market, you know, streaming music, is growing so fast for the past three or five years, or maybe seven or eight years, and it's only going to continue to grow um, a lot of value is being created in the marketplace. We want to capture more of that value than we have. But hey, Mr. Record Label, we also want to help you capture uh, more of that value. Uh, and the way they're kind of thinking about that is they collect by far more data and have more valuable data on music listening than anybody else in the world. Um, you make a good point about YouTube. Um, YouTube may have a different opinion about what I just said. Um, because they're by far a larger service and people, you look at different surveys and different surveys actually say that YouTube is the largest streaming music service in the world. Um, but back to Spotify, I, I think they want to try to share that data and find ways to get paid for sharing that data of user listening tastes, um, back to the labels. Um, and as far as a signpost, you know, I think 
in, in black and white terms, it's going to be gross margin expansion. Um, their gross margin went from low teens, 10 or 12 percent, three or four years ago, five years ago, to now it's in the mid 20s. Um, every two or three years, when they have a renegotiation with the labels, um, kind of when their content uh, licensing terms expire, they've successfully uh, two two contract terms in a row have negotiated higher margins for themselves. Um, so I think that trend is going to continue. I don't think we're, it's going to go from like 25 to 50, but I think as long as it keeps going up, you know, 25 to 28 to 30 to 32 over time, um, I think that's going to be a win for the shareholders. And then I think on top of that, just getting incremental and better economics from the labels, I think they're going to be able to sell their data to labels or to the, the artists themselves or management companies of artists. And that data can be useful for, you know, planning your, uh, the, 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 the example that's thrown around the industry a lot is uh, Metallica, Metallica took uh, Spotify user data uh, by city, by geography. They said, oh, you know, we're our, on tour, we're going to go to Nashville and then Cleveland and then Tampa and then Philadelphia or whatever. And they looked at the most popular songs in each geography. And they were able to use that to tailor what their playlist was going to be in different markets. So that's just one example um, of how they tr- capture data and how it can be valuable to artists. But yeah, and another one, I guess, would be uh, media content. Um, you know, people have speculated Spotify is going to try to follow the Netflix playbook and try to eventually own their own content and actually disintermediate a label and start signing artists directly. And I think it's great that they have kind of the free option to do that. I think that you're not paying for that at all in the current stock. Um, but I, I don't think they're necessarily going to do that. But what they have put their toe in the water in as far as content is concerned is uh, podcasts. And as you and I would probably agree, at least for our own purposes, you know, podcasts are becoming a much more important and kind of uh, part of, you know, people's everyday lives uh, versus, you know, this wasn't even something we did or listened to four or five years ago. Um, so owning their own kind of podcast uh, distribution and some of the own content is definitely something else to watch and maybe it's their first step into owning just more content generally. Yeah. So as you talk about those signposts, I think of optionality because Spotify has this playbook or, you know, they can actually create their own content. So is optionality something that you think of as an ingredient in your investment process? Absolutely. Um, the, I mean, the, an ideal situation is you want to identify one or more options a business has, you know, kind of strategically or financially on their balance sheet. And financially, it may be, you know, they've got 10% of their market cap in cash that they don't need. And, that, you know, it's an option that they're going to pay out a special dividend in the future. And nobody's considering that. That's an example. Um, but what you want to identify, what you want to see hope in a situation is identify two or three options um, that the market's not really thinking about um, that basically aren't priced into the stock at all. I mean, so that, you know, if they do happen and they generate a lot of value, you know, they increase revenue incrementally about five or 10 or 20% or something, the market you know, just didn't expect it. Um, so um, it, it's really not something you come across very often um, because the market's pretty sophisticated and intelligent uh, as far as pricing and valuing things. Uh, but occasionally you see it. Um, I'm trying to think of some good examples right now. Um, four or five years ago, um, Amazon Web Services inside of Amazon would have been considered a free option. And I think most people would agree with that looking backwards, although it wasn't that obvious necessarily at the time. Um, 
depending on the day of the week and the headline and I guess the mood of the market or sell side analysts, you know, you could, you could always pretty much say there's a lot of free options inside of Google. Um, um, so I mean, they just have so many different business lines, uh, their productivity suite, uh, YouTube, Waymo, um, their nascent cloud. So, I mean, it's one of the, one or more of those is probably currently a free option inside of the Google's or alphabet stock. So yeah, those are some examples. It's funny that you mentioned Google because just this morning I nearly tweeted out how much would you pay a monthly subscription to use Google because I was talking Mm -hmm. to an investor recently who says he doesn't invest in ad-based businesses. He believes that if a product's good enough, you might as well just offer it in a subscription basis or something like that. So I'm just curious because the consumer surplus for Google is just off the charts. Um, But... That kind of brings us to Twitter because you're pretty big on Twitter. So I just want to hear your Twitter origin story. How did you first get into it? Yeah, no. Um, and you reminded me on the earlier thing about how much would you pay to use Google? You know, Stanley Druckenmiller was on CNBC last month. And I think he asked the same question. And he said something like, you know, he'd pay at least twenty or $30,000 a year without even thinking about it. Um, so it's, it's a good point to consider. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, Twitter is an g- interesting topic, and it's one that's uh, become very topical uh, in my life lately as I talk to people offline. And I kind of want to ask you the same question, but I'll start. So for me, it it kind of it started as just an outgrowth of I was a sole proprietor, have been a sole proprietor, sole investor. Um, I had been used to working in really high per- performing and productive uh, teams in some of the prior companies I worked at. I just kind of missed that social aspect. And also, it's kind of the thing where two heads are better than one. So it's, you know, if you can find another analyst or just anybody that's interested in a, a business or a company you're talking about that kind of has a frame of reference, has read about the sector, you know, if you can talk through a business, you know, usually you can be a little more efficient than if you do it by yourself. So my uh, interest in Twitter and using Twitter was kind of just an outgrowth of that. And it's definitely evolved over time into something that's a lot more important to me and useful than just kind of social interaction or just kind of water cooler, you know, throwaway conversation. You know, it's definitely led to a lot of in-depth analysis and understanding uh, from other, from other analysts. You know, it was, um, I think we were just talking about this offline uh, on O'Shaughnessy's podcast. Bill Gurley was on there yesterday or a few days ago and he said, you know, he said five years ago he didn't he didn't even use Twitter, and now you know some of the conversations he have in direct messages uh, are you know some of the most important kind of thought processes and value drivers he has as far as thinking about businesses and understanding them and you know flagging down trends and you know uh, getting introduced to people in the real world to meet. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and and uh, Patrick himself I think tweeted out this morning something like says something like, if you have a large enough base of Twitter followers, you kind of, and, you're, and you use it correctly and thoughtfully, you kind of have access to an artificial intelligence superpower um, as far as your ability to aggregate data and you know understand uh, trends and topics kind of rapidly. So I thought those are both interesting. And I would say that's consistent uh, with how I use it, or at least how I try to use it. Definitely. So for... The person who thinks of Twitter as kind of like a silly thing where people just send memes to each other. 
kind of <laughs> enlighten them about how you use it. No, you definitely get this question a lot, um, especially from people that are kind of, you know, older than 30 or 35 or 40. Um, and, you know, finance is also a pretty staid, pretty conservative world where at least up until recently, you know, there's not a lot of changes in decorum as far as, you know, what people, how people act around each other or, or dress or, you know, the kind of standard template for writing at businesses or whatever. But um, I think one of the misconceptions or misunderstandings, and you use the example of, of memes or cat pictures or whatever, um, I think as you evolve in your own Twitter network, uh, you start to get more value from the offline communication than you do the online communication. Um, so I, I would say, you know, the majority of the value I get from Twitter is really from I'll tweet out a topic or I'll see somebody else talking about a topic that I'm interested in, like, you know, Grubhub or the elevators, for example. Um, and I'll, you know, d- direct message that person. And even if it's kind of like a, you know, cold call and I don't know them or they don't know me, you know, they can quickly do a search and say, oh, you know, Bluegrass has tweeted out these 10 things about food networks and he seems to kind of know like the basics of the industry. Like this isn't going to be a waste of my time. Let's talk. And that that can really lead really quickly to a lot of in-depth information sharing, you know, sharing notes and sharing, you know, hey, you know, what are the three things you don't like about this business? And, you know, and kind of just boil it down and argue with each other constructively and figure it out. And that leads to, uh, you know, emails and phone calls and real world meetings and um, other stuff like that. So to summarize what I'm saying is, I guess is, you know, Twitter kind of, I think people should think about it like an iceberg. Like you just see like the top of it just kind of floating around, you know, on the, the tweets you see people writing and whatever. And I would say the majority of the interaction and the majority of the value happens below the surface. And so the value really is that huge iceberg that's like underwater. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And yeah, I think that's a, that's the thing about Twitter is that it kind of reduces the friction because if somebody cold emails you, you're like, wait, if they're asking you for 30 minutes of time, you might not be certain that it'd be a good conversation worth your time. But if you can kind of clarify, oh, this person, exactly like you said, this person has done some research it just kind of reduces that friction. So that's that's why I found it to be really useful. Um, um, another thing I would add is there's a lot of debate um, from kind of your blue check marks and your legacy media people who I feel who I think they are sensi- more very sensitive to Twitter and what Twitter is doing to their world uh, of journalism. And that the the topic is kind of like um, you know anonymity versus you know writing under your own name. And if you do, you know, publish under your own name, you know, it basically brings more responsibility. uh, And so you're going to be basically, you know, you have an advantage as an anonymous person because you can say whatever you want. You can make stuff up. You can lie. You can, you know, report on stuff that's not true um, and, you know, get a lot of volume and a lot of popular tweets, but not really be adding any value. That's kind of a negative way to think about what I was going to say was I think there is a lot of value to be had from remaining anonymous. Um, simply because of kind of what you just said about, you know, people saying, Hey, can I have 30 minutes of your time or whatever? Um, if you're anonymous and people don't really know your personality, like they don't know that I love the Lakers and I love Tennessee football and I'm obsessed with my great Dane, you know, they're not going to ask me questions about that. Um, and they're not, they don't know my name. They don't know where I live. They don't know what my, 
you know, position or title is, you know, the firm I work for, these kind of things. So it's just very meritocratic. It's just we're talking about and sharing ideas. You know, there's no baggage. There's no, you know, these kind of things. And there's also, I think, a really good stop and go kind of um, dynamic in that, you know, you can leave a direct message for somebody or be having a conversation and then they just walk away for three days or two hours or whatever. And it's, you know, nobody gets mad at you for that. That's just the norm on this platform. You just pick it up and go whenever people are available and whenever they're not, they're not there. Versus in the real world, you know, if you, you need to make an appointment on somebody's, you know, Microsoft Office or Outlook calendar and then maybe you're late or maybe you can't, you got the wrong phone number, you didn't call them or who knows what. There's just a lot of more frictions based on social norms in the real world that don't exist on Twitter. You could just boil straight down to, you know, Tell me why this business is awful or why is this management team lying to me? Totally. I saw a really funny tweet the other day that somebody basically said, how do you set up a notification like if a stock hits a particular price? And a guy replied saying, well, all you do is say on um, like the short Twitter for that stock, uh, <laughs> this stock will never reach this price and then you'll hear about it all day. <laughs> that all right. Super funny way of saying it. So... Just to switch gears a little bit, you mentioned how you put out a request on Twitter about the elevator business. Mm. So when I saw that, I was really curious about what you learned. Yeah, and that's a good tie-in to what we were just talking about. How do you use Twitter? I definitely try to, you know, put value back into Twitter in the community and share things I think are interesting that other people will like. Um, but I'm finding ways and continue to evolve into ways, to, you know, to be selfish and pull value out myself. And those are examples. You know, I, I don't want to blast people all day long if I'm doing a deep dive on the industry, especially if it's, you know, a dull, boring industry. Uh, but Twitter is great for that. You know, if people know your heart's in the right place and you're just going to share information, you're going to help. And occasionally you put out requests for, hey, does anybody have a good research report on this sector? Or can you recommend a book? Or tell me the best management teams? Or, you know, tell me the top five reasons you wouldn't own a business. You know, a lot of smart people can find you really fast and be very helpful also very quickly. Um, so that's an, that's an example. Yeah, I was um, kind of did a deep dive through that space recently. I think at a really high level, um, and it, it's absolutely an industrial business and it's a little bit of a technology business, but people think of, you know, it's this complicated structural thing inside of this building and there's a lot of cables and pulleys and weights and balances and sensors and, you know, they, they basically think of it's kind of industrial technology business. <clears throat> and that's kind of how it's classified and, you know, the kind of ETFs it would trade in, et cetera. You know, when I kind of walked through the industry and spent time just thinking about all the people who use elevators and who own elevators and who service elevators and <laughs> come in contact into elevators and all these kind of thing, what really jumped out at me is it's really on both sides of the equation, uh, people who use it and people who own it, it's very people driven. So yes, it's a little bit of an, it's an industrial business for sure. Um, but it's really people, uh, it's a people business. And it goes back to the, one of the first things we talked about on this, on this episode, which is, um, when you have people involved and people are kind of the big element on both the supply and de the demand side, you know, it's not a physical plant. It's not like the Google search engine, you know, it's not a car or whatever. It's not something, it's just people making decisions or people's preferences of what they want to do with their time. You know, like think about a service business you know, like haircutting or like nail salons or facials. I mean, those things are never going to be disintermediated. It's just people on both sides providing services to each other. Um, so 
to build into that for elevators on the on the user side you know an elevator is kind of the primary it's kind of it's the central focal point of the of a building and same thing for escalators in like a shopping mall or an airport it's kind of the highest point of social contact that you're kind of forced and jammed into in the building but it's just kind of a natural interaction and meeting place like you know i just use the term elevator pitch you know for example i mean there's it's in our society that you know it's just kind of a an adopted thing about you know making a 30 second pitch or having a brief conversation with people you don't know making a good impression so what really comes with that with it being kind of a kind of a integral social point in a building is it just creates a lot of risk for the building owner that they want to prevent so you don't want the elevator to malfunction because you don't want the tenants in an apartment building or your office tenants to get mad and all the you know executive assistants are emailing you know 30 executive assistants are emailing you building owner telling you the elevator's down uh and you absolutely want to avoid any kind of health or safe safety accident you know you don't want to be on the front page of the new york times or uh, south china you know morning post or whatever uh if you're if you're if you have a building and the elevator wasn't serviced properly and you know it has some kind of catastrophic incident and somebody gets hurt um so there's that kind of social pull uh, that kind of mandates, in addition to actual regulation, health and safety regulation by cities and states, um, that you have to maintain this elevator. Um, that's a long-winded say, way to say the majority of the value in the marketplace for elevator businesses comes through the service contract. And for lots of reasons, socially, social norms and just health reasons and safety reasons, uh, you know, elevators need to be serviced at least every about every two months, sometimes every month to six weeks, um, at least be routine. So um, on the other side uh, of when I'm talking about people, uh, the majority of the expense base for the elevator industry is also people. It's highly skilled, uh, technically trained uh, elevator service technicians, and it takes them one to two years or more to actually get that on the job training. So you basically have, you know, this kind of people-driven thing, people riding up and down elevators, they need, you know, elevators to get to where they're going in their, in their home or their house. Um, they don't want to have any kind of accidents or safety issues. So the building owner is incentivized, you know, to pay a nominal couple hundred dollars a month fee or whatever to have the elevator serviced. Uh, and on the other side, it's people that service the elevators. More of a people business than I would have thought. And I think that more people give it credit for. And because of that people element is so central to both sides of the business, I think it kind of prevents uh, disruption you would see in other industrial businesses. Yeah, I really missed the opportunity to say, give me the elevator pitch on elevators. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So a little bit ago, you mentioned that you now own Spotify stock and you're doing all this research on elevators. So just curious about how you think about sizing into a position and then how you build positions over time. That's certainly that certainly changed for me. Um and for every investor, I'm sure it's an evolution. Okay, I think the way to think about this one as a kind of starting big and getting smaller is if you think about different styles of investing or maybe what some of the predominant styles of investing that have worked, um, and I know this is going to irritate some people, um, over the last, over time, um, you know, value investing, I think, is really driven by the idea of reversion to the mean. Um, that reversion to the mean will consistently happen. If you get the valuation of the business right, 
Um, and for legacy businesses, you know, kind of 20, 30, 50 years ago, valuation is really driven more by hard assets, by tangible assets. Um, and valuation is not, and so that, that terminal value of that business is not moving around really rapidly. And the overall value of the business is not too much impacted by the next two, three, or five years of earnings. Um, so near-term growth isn't really driving a huge amount of value for the overall business. It's just what's the asset value uh, and you know the markets, you can buy this factory or this railroad today for 50 cents on the dollar. The underlying asset value is not going to change that much and we're going to wait for the market to revert to the mean. In that world where that is kind of the framework you look at and how you think about businesses and what works, um, I think averaging down and buying down um, your on a stock, you know, buying something at $50 and then buying it at $30 and $20. If you get the opportunity, you should be tickled and happy, you know, as long as you're confident in what the asset value is of the business. And kind of in that mindset, I used to be a lot more comfortable and would aggressively average down on, on companies, you know, not once or twice, but I mean, three or four or five times until I kind of hit my position limit. For me, that, that kind of scaling into an investment has not really worked that well over time. Um, and I don't think I'm alone on that. I think the driver of that is really, I think the opportunity set of businesses over the past two decades has really changed and evolved more away from that tangible asset-driven business model to intangible asset-driven model. And in the intangible-driven world, you know, where brands and network effects um, are more valuable and drive more value, value um, if you look at the, the overall value of a business like that, um, the terminal value is smaller than it used to be and the near-term growth of earnings for the next five or 10 years, that drives a lot more of the overall value of the company than in the prior world. Um, so in this new world where near-term earnings growth is, or free cash flow growth is going to drive a lot more valuable value and intangible assets are driving a lot more of the overall value as well, I don't think reversion to the mean works in this world. And I don't think, so the typical bet you're making as an value investor stops working in this world. Um, and I think the parallel I'll make here that helps me when I think about actually turning what I'm saying into like a position sizing is think about venture capital. Um, you know, I think we would say those are those guys are kind of the leader in thinking about how to value and understand and invest in intangible asset driven businesses. Um, so think about how they scale into their investments. You know, do they uh, average down? Um, you know, no, the answer is no, very rarely. You know, when you have when you think about a down round or you hear a down round for a venture capital investment, you know, that's a bad word. That's not something you want to hear. And successful businesses in that in that kind of ecosystem usually don't have a down round on their path to IPO or exit via acquisition. Um, so what I'm saying is venture capitalists who are used to investing in these businesses more than public company investors, what they do is they average up. They average up over time. Um, they get the majority of the, the re overall returns for their fund from just a few businesses, but it's not because they averaged down when stuff got cheaper. It's because the business proved itself out and they kept throwing more and more, more capital into a business that continued to prove it was a good business. You know, every stage along the way, it proved it was better than they thought. They said, okay, here's your reward. Here's more money. Um, so that's kind of actually how I think about my own investing now. And I will average down on occasion, but I, what I really prefer to do is scale up. Um, and I think that's something that um, a lot of value investors 
have had trouble with um, uh, kind of converting to over time. Um, basically saying, you know, it's okay if I bought this business at 100 and now the business is at 200 um, because, you know, the business has actually gotten better or their network effects or their competitive advantages have actually gotten even better, you know, and there's actually less risk involved here, even though the price is higher. Um, so that's something you kind of have to train yourself to get used to. And I'm, I'm definitely not all the way there yet, but that's how I think about businesses. I want to take a toehold position, one or 2% position in my portfolio in a business. And I basically want it to prove itself. I mean, I'm, I want to make it tell me to give it more money. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of looking at it. And I definitely resonate with that. I've had the same progression. And one thing that's really helped is the difference between what's happened and what's going to happen. Because mm-hmm. if you look at a stock, it's near its 52-week high, and you're like, oh, it's up 100% 52-week low. There's no way that it can keep going up. You kind of have this idea that it's like gravity. It kind of naturally falls down to like this arbitrary equilibrium. But if you're focused on like the future, then maybe this company's competitive position, just like you said, has gotten even better and it's worth, it's worth more. Um, you so know, a, a good, a good uh, way to think about this in easy terms. Um, I really liked, a po- I don't know if you know the Canadian investor, uh, Peter Kundal. Um, he wrote a great biography. Um, called there's the name of the book biography is called there's always something to do that just kind of profiled his investing experiences um but he he made a and he, he's a traditional value investor he he made a a comment once in the book that was something like his position sizing strategy was once a stock doubled he cut the position in half so every time he got a double he basically took his initial capital out so he was riding on free money and he protected his initial capital and then let the rest of it ride. Um, and he generated really re- good returns doing that. Um, and that's kind of a traditional protect your capital, focus on the downside point of view, which I, that's perfectly fine. I think now, and I don't, I don't practice this, but I thought, what if you turn that upside down? What if every time a stock doubled, you doubled your position? Um, and that was your signal to do it. You know, you don't need a stock chart to do that. You just basically, you know, Think about all these businesses along the way. You know, if you buy a company and you're, it's, it's a, you think the company's either going to go up 10 times or lose all its money, you know, the best way to protect yourself is not to do anything. You know, if it goes down 50%, it might be going to zero. So there's no reason to risk your capital. Uh, but if it doubles, I mean, it, it, it may be a proof point that it's telling you, hey, you know, this is actually on its journey now. And even though it just doubled, it's about to go up five more times. Um, so I think that kind of mindset uh, is more applicable in our current world than what Peter Kundal practiced kind of in a more traditional value investing world, uh, where kind of assets and reversion to the mean were more important. So speaking of starting new positions, what's the fastest amount of time you've went from hearing about a business and knowing that existed to actually buying it? Like what does those initial due diligence steps look like and how long do they take? That's fun. Well, I'll say this. I'm going to pull up my portfolio to see if there's any <laughs> good examples. So the summary answer would be, I, I mean, I really don't ever, I mean, it would take, I mean, usually, usually I'm familiar with the company for at least six months or a year before I even think about buying it. Um, and that's not necessarily because I'm doing so much work on the, on the name or I'm not comfortable. It's really because I've already got a portfolio that's built. It's fully invested that I love all the existing names I have and, you know, I don't feel like I need to add any value or, you know, 
add anything to my portfolio. So I don't feel like I'm pressured, you know, to, to do anything. But um, I mean, I mean, for me, if I read, if I read a really good three or five page or ten page shareholder letter uh, about a business that I kind of know the industry, the the in market really well, but I don't really know that business really well. And everything just makes sense. So they're talking about how they're going to reinvest their capital. They're talking about what their returns on capital are, what their advantages are, you know, why they founded the business, why they're passionate about the business and industry, you know, how they treat them employees better than themselves and, you know, whatever. They just have a lot of qualities. You know, sometimes I've been really uh, close to wanting to just jump in. I know uh, one example that I don't own, but I know I had that moment was when I read the shareholder letter of um, uh, True Panion. Uh, the veterinary insurance company. Um, I, I absolutely read that 10 or 15 page letter where he's breaking down kind of cohort analysis of the customers they acquired over the last five years and what the returns on are over those cohorts and how that builds into their current cash flow and you know what it what that translates into as far as having break even or slightly losing EBIT margin. You know, I'm just looking at this and just thinking everything here works. The end market's great. The management team's great. Uh, you know, initial capital was about Howard Schultz from Starbucks. You know, the board's awesome. Uh, market's growing like crazy. Veterinary insurance is 1% penetrated in the U.S. versus like 25% in the U.K. You know, I think I got to the end of that letter. and I think I probably opened my brokerage account like, yeah, maybe. Um, but it doesn't really happen that often. Um, so, yeah, usually for at least six months or a year, um, I'm reading about a business or an industry before I even think about uh, buying it. Got it. And... Another question from Twitter is when you're looking at so many different businesses, you mentioned you have a current portfolio that's fully invested. You really like those companies, but how do you stop what the and asker of the question, I believe it was Liberty, he says, how do you stop the shiny new thing syndrome mm-hmm. when you're looking at all these companies and basically focus on your current holdings? Right. One more add to that last uh, question. Um, actually, I'm, I'm looking at my names. I did actually buy Texas Instruments. Um, I was relatively familiar with analog semiconductors, um, but wasn't terribly familiar uh, with the Texas Instruments itself specifically. And I think somebody turned me on to their shareholder communications uh, effort. And they put out like a 30-page de- 30 uh, capital allocation slide deck every year that all they talk about the only topic of this slide deck is their capital allocation um so i think i saw that and i think that was last year and it just happened to be right when we were entering the turbulent period of kind of like october and december so i think from like two or three weeks or a month from reading that i think i bought that stock that might be one of the shortest kind of diligence periods i've had recently just for what that's worth um for liberty and the shiny new object um topic yeah so when I read, and I, and I confessed to you earlier, I try to read one annual report a day. When I'm reading through annual reports, I, I'm picking them for a variety of reasons. I'm picking them because I think they're interesting businesses or because somebody told me to and I trust that person's opinion or because they're an important business. Um, but the kind of key central theme of my reading list and what I'm reading about, I'm trying to reading about businesses that I think either will have an impact on the existing companies I own, like competitively, or could. 
So that's an example of why I wanted to study the food order businesses, um, which I don't own any of them. Uh, I just wanted to understand what these are. You know, can they impact any businesses that I own? Can they impact, um, you know, a restaurant, for example, a restaurant Bronze International, which I own? Can they impact Amazon some way? Um, are they going to be a threat to Uber, which I don't own? But that's the kind of thing. So I'm reading about businesses, just trying to learn about good other good businesses. But also, I'm really doing it from the viewpoint of, you know, here are the 20 businesses I own. What can I learn about these businesses or their competitive positions by reading about their competitors? or, you know, in, new entrants to the, to the industry. You know, when I'm reading about Zoom and I'm reading about Slack, um, you know, I'm trying to ask myself questions, you know, Microsoft, which I own, can they play in these markets? They have, you know, markets, they have products in these markets that are doing pretty well. You know, do these other companies have huge competitive advantages over them? Um, and so what that does, in addition to giving me better knowledge and insight to my existing businesses, it helps me understand things I see down the road. So when Microsoft, for example, acquires um, LinkedIn, you know, I understand why that happened. It makes complete sense to me. It's a great, you know, multi-sided social network that has a lot of value that's focused on uh, uh, productivity and employment and workers, and it falls perfectly into, you know, Microsoft's existing product suite. Um, so that's kind of an example, um, you know, that I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily tempted to go buy Zoom or go buy LinkedIn um, because I basically, you know, I see that whatever's happened with that company or that end market, it's probably something that I'm going to benefit from either way. Um, anyway, because the b businesses I own are going to benefit from those trends or the businesses I own are going to buy one of those companies. Gotcha. That's a super good way of looking at that. That's, that's really important. So just to be respectful of your time, just got one more question and I saw you tweeted out this chart of basically the markets since the beginning of 2018, <laughs> I would believe. And right. you saw that big dip in December of last year and then where we are now. And it's like a little bit up, but I guess it depends on the frame of reference and everything. But curious about your psychology when the market is kind of in a free fall, as we saw in December. What are you thinking? How do you actually make your capital allocation decisions just some more details there i think your best defenses in those in that situation and i don't think it's something you can really prepare for even though i'll give you a comment about timing i think in a second um i think your best ability to be defensive and kind of protect your portfolio and also just protect your brain and your psychology um, is just to really understand your portfolio um Keep a concentrated portfolio, and that's different, means different things to different people, you know, 10, 20 names, something like that. Businesses you understand, but if, if one of them goes down 20% for no reason, you're not going to lose sleep over it. Um, the other thing is just to have plenty of cash, and that also means different things for different people, but have plenty of cash. I think this may not be a great answer, um, but it, I'm sure it will generate some debate, um, so I'll throw it out there. I have looked, and I think Twitter knows I'm a big fan of charts and technical analysis and just looking at different time periods, which I do a lot, even though I don't share it because I don't think at least my followers would get that much value from it. I've studied a lot of cycles of the U.S. market um, going back probably to at least 1980 um, time frame. Uh, and something that's jumped out at me I mean, when you think about market crashes and panic periods and 
recessionary environments um, kind of thing. People tend to really want to say there's a natural life cycle and there's a life cycle that has to start and then it has to go for a few years and it has to end at some point in time. Um, and that we have to be, and I think people are really overly fixated on trying to predict when that is and what the drivers are going to be. Um, I don't really have any value to add on that, but what I have noticed is absolutely there are market cycles and they generally kind of overlap and correlate with other things that are important, that are important drivers, but not all the time. Um, sometimes the market, you know, dips ahead of a recession and sometimes it really doesn't. You know, sometimes things that are not important or less important, like political shenanigans, can cause the market to kind of drop. You know, sometimes you have two or three cycles of the business cycle or investor psychology or money just coming in and out of the market. Like, for example, when the baby boomers started retiring 10 years ago and just started taking all their money out of the market or something like you have right now where millennials are starting to get financial assets for the first time and probably in the next few years are going to start actually putting money into the stock market for the first time. So what I'm talking about there is fund flows. You know, it's these three or four different things that kind of all have three or four, two or three or five year cycles. When they overlap in a really good way, that's when you see market booms. And when they overlap in a really bad way, that's when you see the market go down 30% at a time. So what's really going on below the surface is there are four or five different drivers and different cycles that are all happening at the same time. Uh, the, the presidential cycle in politics, uh, the earnings cycle and just business cycle, the interest rate cycle, uh, the, the cycle of you know people just putting money, fund flows in and out of the market based on their own personal leads of retirement or employment or having a baby or starting to invest or whatever. And to summarize all what I'm saying, at least what I see from my vantage point, I've noticed kind of a pretty predictable, it's about a 36 month time frame, And this is kind of going from now back to about 1980. Every 36 months, and it's basically give or take every nine months. So call it every two and a half to every three uh, three and three quarters years, there is a big drawdown. And from the starting point of that kind of three year period to the ending point, there are two or three kind of, you know, 10 to 20% drawdowns along the way. And then there's kind of a crescendo at the end of that 36 month period, again, give or take nine months, where you just have a fallout, where all these cycles just hit each other at the, at the worst time and they all just overlap and sentiment goes bad and people that were already going to pull out money you know, a few months ago for retirement or for a vacation, they see what's going on bad in the headlines and they think Donald Trump's crazy, you know, and they think the Fed is going to raise interest rates for some reason or whatever. And it just all kind of cannibal or um, snowballs. Um, so that's just what you see. You just see that kind of happen over and over and over again. And it's impossible to guess when all those cycles are going to line up once every three years and we're going to have a 20 or 30 percent sell off. But they do. They do happen on a predictable cycle, even though we know they're not going to happen. Um, so even though I know I don't know what's going to cause them, I know it's going to happen. I know with an idea, give or take nine months, when it's going to happen. And I basically just adjust my portfolio over that period. Um, I think we just came out of one of those periods, basically a reset in this last six months. So I think the clock just started ticking again and we're at the new kind of beginning of a three-year cycle. And for me, what that means is, when I see opportunities to pull capital out of the market over the next three years, you know, I do it. If I see something that 
um, you know, if I bought something at, I don't know if I can give an example. Um, but yeah, if I just see uh, a position that I bought for 3% of my portfolio has now gone to 5%. And oh, good examples would be um, very interest rate sensitive stocks. So American Tower is a great example. I've been trimming American Tower. When that business goes from 140 to $220 in three or four months for no reason, other than that the 10-year treasury rate went from uh, 325 bips to 190 bips, you know, that's what happens. And um, that look for me, that looks like a, you know, an opportunity to take some capital out because I know those stocks tend to trade over time on interest rates. And I know, you know, sometime in the next three years, the cell towers are going to have some crash because interest rates are going to spike. I don't know if that's six months from now or two years from now, but I know whenever that happens, me taking my American tower from like a 6% position down to a 4% position, it's going to make me happy and confident to add to that at that time. Got it. And yeah, just thanks so much again for your time. Uh, just a lot of good stuff in here. I'll have to go back and listen to this one personally. Ryan, yeah, I, I enjoyed it and look forward to the feedback we get. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.